The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. There was a stat that recently came out that kind of six out of 10 Netflix users watched actually a piece of South Korean content last year, which is just staggering when you consider how quickly that has evolved, that global consumption of content. And it also actually speaks to implicit biases, how how long, for example, a lot of studio heads and traditional media companies kind of dictated what the American consumer liked and would consume. And then very quickly by aggregating enough eyeballs on, on you know, these digital streaming platforms, really Netflix being the pioneer blazing the trail here, we, we very quickly realized that a lot of those implicit biases were just flat out wrong. That was Vanya Schlogel, the founder and CEO of Atwater Capital, a media and entertainment investment company. Welcome back to The Exchange, a weekly conversation about issues of interest for business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jennifer Saba, a New York-based columnist with Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters. This week, I'm talking to Vanya Schlogel, the founder and CEO of Atwater Capital. Vanya has a unique perch in the entertainment industry. She's part of the group that includes French studio Mediawan and her former stomping grounds, private equity firm KKR, which teamed up last year to buy a significant stake in Brad Pitt's production firm, Plan B. At the same time, the bubble in the TV and film market is popping, given that streaming video services like Netflix and Disney Plus are now putting a priority on profitability over subscriber growth. I sat down with Vanya to discuss the current environment. Vanya, welcome to The Exchange. I'm very excited that you have decided to dial in from Los Angeles. Thank you for having me here. Well, we met a few months ago after French film studio Mediawan bought a significant stake in Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B Entertainment. So your firm, Atwater Capital, along with KKR, is a strategic partner of Mediawan's, and now you're heading up that U.S. investment. So why don't you just kind of explain to me, like, you know, why they were interested in Plan B and sort of the thesis behind this acquisition? It's like Europe coming into the U.S. trying to go Hollywood. So What's the rationale for that? The, I'd say the, the biggest meta theme behind it is just this cross-border growth in terms of consumption of content. Um, there was a stat that recently came out that kind of six out of 10 Netflix users uh, watched actually a piece of South Korean content last year, which is just staggering when you consider how quickly that has evolved, that global consumption of content. And it also actually speaks to implicit biases, how how long, for example, a lot of studio heads and traditional media companies kind of dictated what the American consumer liked and would consume. And then very quickly by aggregating enough eyeballs on, on you know, these digital streaming platforms, really Netflix being the pioneer blazing the trail here, we, we very quickly realized that a lot of those implicit biases were just flat out wrong. And so the first thing is is really as simple as a good story is a good story. And it makes more sense to have these kind of global alliances of independent content creators and storytellers um, for several reasons. One, just to make sure that there's actually enough scale that your story gets made and it gets made in an economical, um, or I should say commercially uh, relevant um, and sustainable fashion. Yeah. Um, and, and and then the second thing is just there's no reason why there shouldn't be more cross-border kind of pollination of good IP. And I, I think it's really wonderful to see examples where, you know, there are movies coming out where it's, you know, um, 
European IP directed by a Korean director starring an American actor, right? Like that's just a great, we're going to see more and more of that. I think, especially if there's an impending Writers Guild strike happening um, where the negotiations will really figure out by early summer whether or not that moves forward. And by the way, if that does happen, I think it kind of actually hastens more of this kind of cross-border, not only consumption, but cross-border creation of content, because it's just going to be more international creators and writers um, working uh, with uh, American, with Asian, with other, uh, you know, geographical talents in terms of content creation. So that was really the biggest meta theme behind it. Um, and at the end of the day, Media One, uh, led by Pierre-Antoine, kept on. And Plan B, you know, led by by Brad Pitt, uh, Dee Dee Gardner, Jeremy Kleiner, have a very similar ethos in terms of um, incredible prestige content, um, very authentic storytelling, and so the, the DNA also matched up from that perspective. So, what about the economics of this? So, like when you're going out and you've 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 looked at this for a long time, right? And and how content is being made and how it's being consumed. But like when you are looking at deals, like what what do you look for to make sure that you're going to get a return on investment, right? Like I, I feel like it's probably trickier to do, and maybe I'm wrong, with TV series and movies. But how do you think about that? It is, well, I will tell you that is actually why scale matters. Um, not to get too nerdy on you, but no, it is nerd out. I want to yeah. nerd out. <laughs> This is the forum for yeah. it, so I, I feel very yeah. accepted. Um, so, you know, not to try and interject too much Wall Street parlance, but this is where portfolio diversification matters. And that's actually, I think, one of the biggest draws for being a part, for example, of the Mediawan Leo9 Studios platform and system is um, every kind of prestige production company that has accepted capital from our platform and has become a part of us gets the benefit of being able to retain their creative identi identity, um, but at the same time also gets to be a part of something bigger. And, and, and when, I, when I say that, I also mean economically bigger because scale mm -hmm. matters. And when there, when there are kind of a regular cash flows being generated that, that allow you to deploy that back into new content creation and you're part of a bigger thing, I think there's just less pressure around having to get that that one hit that year, um, because that's exceedingly hard to do. And even the, even the most talented creators on the planet uh, know that that's not how the game works. That's that some years you're going to have down years, some years you're going to have incredible years. And so I think part of the nexus here is really around finding great people that we ultimately believe very strongly in. So really what we're looking for is these very talented executives that we ultimately believe in their their go forward ability to create incredible content but we aren't banking on them to have to create hits every year mm -hmm. um, because that's an incredibly stressful place to be they get to maintain their creative identity and, and freedom and meanwhile be a part of something bigger so that if there is a down year there's no stress with that it's like that's part of the, not to sound trite but that's part of teamwork that's part of having a diversified portfolio so it really is when it comes to these creative endeavors looking at two things the track record of the executives and then also um, really understanding what types of people these are and I, I will tell you very soundly that we gained a great deal of comfort and also excitement the more that we got to know 
Brad, Jeremy, and Didi, that these are the kinds of folks that we want to work with. So then economically, it just becomes really a, a consideration of um, come be a part of something bigger, continue doing what you do. It's okay if you have a down year. It's great if you have a good year. Overall, um, being a part of something bigger, we believe in your go forward ability uh, to create wonderful content and storytelling. So basically what you're saying is the more content you have, the less you kind of spread out the risk. And so that is, it, it mitigates, you know, the the swings in, you know, when you have a hit on your hands, right? Like you, like covering the movies, you see this, right? Like it's, you could have like a, an avatar, right? Or you could just have something that completely flops and then that could swing your cash flows or ability to make other things. Like, so what you're saying is like the, the more you have and the more you spread out the risk, the better it is. Absolutely. But I don't want to say that at the risk of sounding like curation isn't important because that is also a huge reason why we were so excited about the plan B acquisition because i think going forward and we've already actually experienced this um as a society where there's been a little bit of fatigue around wading through the vast amounts of content right mm -hmm. <laughs> and just mm -hmm. i think curation is becoming increasingly important um it's why the folks at plan b have done so well it's with with titles like moonlight and minari um it's why the folks at a24 have done so well it's why um, 88 Rising, which is another portfolio company of ours, has done so well because, for example, with that one, it's amazing because 88 Rising owns the IP for Head in the Clouds Festival, which is um, which was actually the largest music festival in Los Angeles County in 2022. Mm -hmm. And here's here's the a really interesting stat about that. 88 Rising, when it launches its festival its website crashes, its tickets are being sold out before a lineup is even announced. What does that tell you? It tells you yeah. that there is a community and a brand and there are a lot of consumers and folks that feel an affinity towards that brand. They trust the curation of the brand in the same way that my wife will go watch an A24 film because it's A24. Um, and so I think going forward, this, there's this curatorial, or let me say a premium on curation um, and it's going to have to do with community, talent, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to make it seem like it's just a volume game. Economically, scale matters, portfolio diversification matters. Uh, but also on a commercial level, curation, I think, is so important. And it's going to be increasingly important going forward. Well, let's let's pick that, uh, that, that thread up here, because I, I think that in this environment right now, I think that's an interesting remark, because all of a sudden, Wall Street is now focused on the bottom line and profitability of, you know, Netflix or Disney Plus or all these streamers that have just been launched. And, you know, what does that do for the market? Because now you're in the market to sell TV shows and movies, right? So so what does that look like and what have you noticed? Is there a slowdown in, I mean, because it felt like anything was getting bought right any little thing was getting bought right and and now what you're saying is like okay everybody's there, there are two two things happening it's about curation and like the consumer is being inundated with too much content and then you know then you have the pressures of making sure these things start turning a profit so what does that environment look like when you're a seller it, it definitely has been challenging for the past six months in the sense of some of these uh 
macro forces are very real. You look at Warner Discovery. I mean, there's over $50 billion of debt on that balance sheet, right? So yeah. there's been a lot of big M&A that has happened um, in recent years that's caused, and a lot of that was funded through debt. And so a lot of these big players that are more traditional buyers of content are contending with kind of unwieldy capital structures, which is cutting to their ability to kind of spend. And then on the more digital side, we've, we've, we've witnessed really starting in, you know, second half of last year, net subscriber ads becoming a more challenging game as the over the top segment became more competitive. So these are very real things. Now, that being said, I'm actually going to tie it back to the curation standpoint, because I think what we've witnessed in the past six months is absolutely a pullback, which I would characterize as more of a correction, but it's not going to be a permanent thing because I think what's going to happen is we've had six rough months. Um, and let me also, by the way, I'm going to already caveat that I don't think that applies that much to local language content. So I will come back to that. Mm -hmm. But we had a rough six months when it came to being on the sell side uh, for content. Um, I think especially if the writer strike does go forward in the U.S., then there's going to be, call it another three to six months of, you know, kind of pullback in terms of nominal amounts of, of capital spent on content. And then you're going to kind of see these platforms in a position where for roughly the last year, they have not deployed a lot of, of spend into content investment, but they're going to come back to the market and it's still going to be a competitive landscape where you still have these big traditional behemoths buying content um, who have now also circled their wagons uh, around their own streaming platforms. And they're going to have to come back and go back into buying content. I think they're going to care more about curation. This is very true. But I, I think we are in a temporary kind of correction period that is not permanent. And so I do see this kind of current situation unwinding within the next, call it, six to to 12 months. And so there's just been, you know, a little bit of the exuberance in the market popped. Um, it's actually a good thing. i actually think for, as a consumer, it's a good thing as someone who also suffers kind of algorithm fatigue. Um, I, I think it's, it's a good thing. Now, the one point that I said I would come back to is really around local language content. That is the one area where um, I don't think we have felt much pullback or correction at all for several reasons. One of one of the biggest ones being, you know, if you looked at Netflix's net subscriber ads, and I'm using Netflix as a proxy for over the top streaming growth. I, they are the most mature platform in this. So I think it's a decent proxy, sure. but they figured out there were very few American households left to sell to. You need to look at other uh, geographies and avenues of growth to really start getting back into a positive net subscriber addition territory. And so uh, the, the natural markets, you know, have been um, uh, Europe and, and Asia as big drivers of growth. If you actually look at the composition of Netflix's uh, quarterly net subscriber ads, the growth is now coming from overseas markets. And so those markets, I think they're going to um, continue to invest in content in those markets where there's still positive, um, you know, net subscriber gains to be had. And then I think in more mature markets, predominantly in North America, they're going to continue spending, but it's going to be more, there's going to be a greater focus on curation. There's going to be a greater focus on, I think, getting a return on investment. So what are pieces of content that, for example, 
uh, act as a customer acquisition tool? What are pieces of content that are going to be more of a retention tool? And just sharpening uh, the pencil around that. So I, I want to flip that around a little bit in terms of when, like a Netflix, and, and I want to use, you, you talked about Korea as an example, but like, so, you know, Squid Games was, you know, a, a huge success for them. And I think they paid very, very little uh, for mm-hmm. it. Um, and so I, I wanted to get a sense from you, like, where are they, where are the streamers going out shopping? Like what, outside of Hollywood, right? Outside of the Hollywood ecosystem, where are they going to kind of like have like, lo- right? Because the, the idea is that you just don't want local content, but you want something that's just going to light the world on fire, right? And 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 you kind of, also want to hit that again too. So where are the countries where you're seeing people shop, like the streamer shopping for content? I mean, Korea is definitely that statistical outlier because it, it is pretty incredible. The, the um, I'd say the, just looking at unit economics, the cost, if we were to try and make content on a per unit basis, the cost of just creating this, this uh, content um, out of South Korea versus out of the U.S. Now, granted, that gap is closing, and I think over time it will close further. But mm-hmm. for now, there is still a huge return on investment um, for investing out of out of South Korea. And I think one of the things to be cognizant of, from a very American standpoint, um, sometimes we forget because the, the 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 American content that we consume is not necessarily the sensibilities of the world. And so he, here's what I mean by that in a more concrete way. Um, there are a lot of Korean dramas, and I say this as someone who's half Korean and I've grown up watching Korean dramas, where, you know, the kind of joke was you would watch, you know, 20 episodes, whatever it was, to basically watch the protagonists at the end share a very chaste kiss or hold hands. And that was like your climactic moment, and everything was very much leading up to that. And we forget sometimes certain facets of culture um, that actually lend themselves to uh, global uptake and demand for Korean content. So for example, there are a lot of other cultures in the world that also um, are much more conservative around sexuality and how it's displayed on screen. And so for years, actually, Korean content did really well in in other parts of Asia, even sometimes in places uh, in the Middle East, Hmm. um, because there were a lot of consumers that were not used to seeing some graphic sex scene. They they were fine, you know, waiting the 20 episodes to watch the the peck at the end. And so there's even little facets like that that have um, been unique in facilitating kind of the cross-border demand for uh, different content types like Korean content. So Korean content is definitely an outlier. Another geography that exports a lot of content is Turkey. Um, Same with Brazil. Um, So it's really interesting and it kind of does make one wonder why is it that these countries maybe are so prolific and successful at content creation and export the other thing I want to talk about that you also have had a hand in um, in your career is is music rights. Um, and uh, let's talk a little bit about your background there and, you know, maybe how that differs a little bit from what you're doing now with Film Catalog. Um, so and, and right now, the streaming world seems to have, for music at least, um, 
you know, the, the, the music companies and, and seem to have had a revival, right? Like they were almost left for dead in 2000 and 2000, you know, whatever, like digital digitalization was going to kill the kill music. And it's actually had the flip flip effect. So take me through that. What like what what have you noticed kind of through the years that that, you know, with with music rights and, and sort of how that's evolving? It is fascinating that you're right. Digitization was originally really seen as kind of a death knell for the music industry um, for two reasons. One, the obvious one, piracy. But the second one being because downloads essentially were the disaggregation tool, um, whereas before one could sell a physical good, whether it was a vinyl or or a tape or a CD. And you kind of, I remember being 13 and on an inflation adjusted basis, spending so much on a single CD, maybe just to even get one or two songs. You know, I was buying a bundled, um, basically bundled rights. And I had to spend that much just to get the, the, you know, couple songs that I wanted. And then downloads came around and it basically unbundled those rights. And so you're absolutely right that for a while, in music, digitization was not friendly because it was piracy. It was unbundling what used to be sold as a bundle. So um, it was kind of fascinating to see um, executive scramble in the market perception of music kind of, uh, you know, in a very negative light. And I remember back in 2009, I was at KKR at the time uh, working with uh, Philip Freiza, who is, is a wonderful business partner still at KKR. And we were, we, we studied music rights. And this, by the way, this is not going to sound cutting edge now. Back then, I almost want to say take my word for it. It was because music had such a negative perception as being hit driven and also um, subject to structural decay and technological kind of obsolescence in a sense. Mm -hmm. And we were studying the, the kind of various ways to look at music rights and specifically music publishing which I would characterize as kind of the, um, no offense to accountants, but maybe the unsexy accounting cousin of, of music, you know, within the music uh, yeah, in, right, uh, right. sector. And one of the things that we noticed is a music publishing rights specifically. So there are really two ways to bifurcate music rights, first and foremost. First is the recorded side of things. And the second is the publishing side of things. Now the publishing rights are exceedingly stable because um, their revenue streams are generated from a more diverse uh, set of sources. And so while they do have exposure to what's called mechanical rights, which back in the day used to be CD sales, now they're music streams, they also have exposure and monetization from that song being played at a pub or that song being performed at a music festival or that song um, showing up in a Bond movie, right? So all those different disparate revenue sources basically comprise what is a music publishing right. And so when we, uh, Philip and I started digging into this, we're like, this is actually not as hit driven as everyone expects. Because even with this kind of uh, structural decline that was brought in for this period um, with, with digitization, uh, there were still other sources that were very stable contributing to uh, publishing rights. And so back in 2009, we essentially did the buy and build of BMG, what is BMG Music Today, and created one of the world's largest indie players. You know, over, a lot of people don't know this story, but over three and a half years, we acquired 13 companies and catalogs 
at a time when not many people were making these acquisitions. Yeah. So you, um, so you like, yeah. cause I was going to say like, you probably did <laughs> this kind of genius because now I, I feel like the, the acquisition rights have just gone through the roof. I mean, like, and, and just like what you're seeing the, the numbers on some of these like publishing rights are just, they, they seem crazy to me, but maybe they're not. I don't know. I, they're definitely, I will validate the fact that there's been about, I'd say maybe a 400% accretion in the overall value of these rights, maybe even higher, um, definitely higher for some of the really, really marquee rights. Yeah. Um, that is for sure. Um, and you know, in terms of, are these prices crazy? Really? It, I'm going to, I'm going to answer that by actually trying to play devil's advocate on both sides of things. Okay. Um, let me start with the more negative side, which is at the end of the day, there are kind of these annuity cash flows that are spit off from these rights. And anyone that's ever built a discounted cash flow model knows that when interest rates go up, you discount your cash flows at a higher rate, which is not good for valuations, right? So that just metathematically, that's that's one basic um, function in terms of driving the valuation. But then on the other side, these are assets that are truly irreplaceable. They are in the lexicon of culture. And it's not like a copper pipe sitting in a field somewhere. You know what I mean? There, there's, yeah. there's a, there's a non fungibility to these assets. And so, um, I, I always have a hard time. I could probably sit there and argue with myself um, until the cows come home because I, I really can see facets of both sides of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's well. So I, I want to get to something else here that just happened recently in the news. Um, Universal Music Group. Um, uh, boss Luciana Grange was recently advocating for a new economic model for for streaming music what what do you think he means by that like I don't like it seems like it's pretty good for them but I you could be wrong and in the context was like you know he wants to pay out the artists more et cetera et cetera so how what what do you think that means um so I will say let me let or, me first maybe, actually let, let me, I'm sorry. Let me yeah. rephrase that. Do, do you think mm -hmm. that there needs to be a new economic streaming? I, I do. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm going to, you know, th there's actually, it's still on YouTube. Back in 2015, I gave a talk at Midum, which is kind of a preeminent music conference and spoke about this at length, where even back then I was advocating and saying there needs to be a fundamental change in terms of how artists are compensated. Uh, so yes, uh, first and foremost, I agree with that. And I've been advocating for that actually for a while. And maybe I will even answer it first by stepping back and explaining the formula and then and then highlighting some of the, let's say, errant things that can happen by virtue of how the formula is set up. So at a very basic level, right now, it's, it's this kind of basic algebraic equation where you have a numerator and a denominator. The way that artists are compensated broadly is how many streams you're going to get uh, versus the denominator of all streams. Okay. So it's basically a base, a, a very basic and easy uh, math equation. That is, mm -hmm. that is how it is today. Now, the problem with that is visibility Visibility isn't equal. That's one problem with it. So actually, one of the things that Lucy and Grange and Universal and all the other major labels have actually been a net beneficiary of is the fact that they control a ton of real estate. And I mean, digital real estate. When one logs on to Apple Music or Spotify, 
there's a lot of overlap in terms of the digital landing page that you're going to see, right? It's these top kind of artists that sell out arenas. It's the Beyonce's, the Ariana Grande's, the Justin Bieber's of the world, um, the Ed Sheeran's that really dominate streaming. And uh, the preponderance of those artists are actually signed to major labels. And so they're, by the way, and those major labels own these huge catalogs that generate annuity cash flows that allow them to then but spend more marketing dollars to ensure that their artists get the the majority of streams. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be actually very curious to see what Lucy and Grange and the major labels come out with as the, the countervailing suggestion to the formula now, because up until now, this formula has actually benefited them quite nicely, to be to be very honest. Yeah. Now, yeah. one of the things that has upset them, which I think is 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 a problem, and this legitimately does need to be fixed, is there's you know these little cons that people have figured out. Anytime there's a system that's open to abuse, you, you know you got to expect that some people are going to try and exploit that. So, for example, I I believe that the streaming cutoff mark is kind of thirty seconds in order for that song to be counted um, as a stream. Remember oh. going back to your numerator and yeah. denominator. Yeah. So you have some of these kind of con shops, and by the way, they have popped up that do nothing more than figure out how to name songs and upload them. And they are 31 second clips to make sure that you click on it. It plays the 31 seconds. It's not legitimate music, but they get paid a lot of money uh, cumulatively. <laughs> So it's like click, it's like clickbait. It's <laughs> literally of. the definition. I didn't of know that existed. That's interesting. Yeah. So formulaically, I think the the major labels have been sitting in a very advantaged position for years, and now suddenly they're kind of saying, "Hold on a second. Who is this? You know, shady little shop that's suddenly you know inundating uh, uh, these streaming services with." fake music and messing up our numerator and denominator equation. Huh. So that's kind of, I think that to me is low hanging fruit in terms of the types of things that they would attack. I think thematically and more strategically, what's going to be interesting is we're going to see the evolution of more strategic monetization of fandom and less around this very basic equation of one stream equals point whatever 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 sense right mm -hmm. and and i think we're going to see a lot of that being modeled for the west out of asia to be completely frank um the reason so what is that what do you mean by that what does that look like well even on a basic macroeconomic level uh i'm a huge Frank Ocean fan. I'm a huge Lauren Hill fan. Like those are two artists that they can get a bigger share of my wallet than if I go on to Spotify or Apple Music and stream them. So taking it to macroeconomic terms, the monetization that is happening under that use case is not on the demand curve. So if I'm willing to, to of my wallet, let's say pay $150 in a year towards, you know, Lauren Hill songs or just supporting, you know, her artistry, um, that 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 is the end edge of my demand curve. But if I'm streaming music, maybe the actual monetization ends up being three dollars. See, there's a huge 
kind of gray area in between, between what I'm willing to spend because of my fandom and what is actually being monetized of me as a fan. And so, so that's- So, so the way that the, what I'm see, hearing from you is almost like individual artist subscription. So you're gonna subscribe to a Lauren Hill or membership of Lauren Hill, right? Because you, you, you're you such a fan of hers that you're willing to to pay for that. In some shape or form, I think that is gonna be more, yes, like whether it's a fan club or something, I think one of the companies, and this is why I say I really think it's being modeled for us right now out of Asia. Uh, Hybe, which is uh, the company out of Korea led by uh, Chiwon Park that um, has BTS. Uh-huh. Um, they have really been cutting edge in terms of figuring out how do we monetize fandom versus just music sales. By the way, look at the composition of their team. The CEO of Hive, as well as a large amount of the talent at that quote unquote music label is actually ex gaming executives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you, if you think about when I'm in a game and, and I'm playing, sorry, when I'm playing a game, their entire body of knowledge is how to monetize my engagement with that game. They're thinking about where is her demand curve? How can we get her on that demand curve? Right? So if I'm buying some pink ax or whatever, some digital good, in that game and they see how committed I am to that game. And so they're constantly going to throw these little micro transactions my way. That's monetizing my fandom. And so I think the world of music um, and in general, even film and TV and even, even communities around talent, like any way that you can cut up and dice and say, this is a fandom community, we're going to get more and more sophisticated over time at monetizing that. Okay, so I want to ask you one parting question. The Oscars are coming up. Um, who is your prediction to win the best picture? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Well, okay, so the Oscars will probably have happened after after this uh, is published. But Vanya, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. I want to give a shout out to Thomas Shum, who produced this podcast. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you go to get your audio cravings. Also, check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. And of course, don't forget to read Breaking Views. Thanks for tuning in and listening.